Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. Uh, You know, this is one of my favorite uh, show hours to do. People have asked me, you know, don't you ever get tired of doing radio? And don't you ever get tired of, you know, talking to the people you talk to? And, And my answer is absolutely not. I love what I do. I love this hour in particular. This is a full hour where if we decide not to go to any breaks, we will not go to any breaks. It's just me and my guests, and we get to talk about some of the most incredible things uh, imaginable. And, you know, I leave my hand, you know, we leave our, our show in the hands of Seth and the team here at the station, which is kind of like incredible. And we just, just rock it, have a great time. So let me ask you this question. What do Law and Order, Lost, and Shakespeare have in common? Well, how do they all, or how are they all, referenced in the Bible? Is that true? You know, is it a profound, cryptic, and amazing way that we seem to be weaving messages from the Bible into our pop culture? Well, guess what? Professor of Religious uh, Studies and author Kristen Swenson is joining me here today. Kristen has been on my show before. She is also the, the author of a really incredible book, a Bible Babble, Making Sense of the Most Talked About Book of All Time. I don't know how Kristen has been able to make sense of the Bible. I remember my introduction to the Bible early on, very, very young, actually, uh, in Catholic boarding school. I was actually seven years old. And I remember being introduced to uh, the Stations of the Cross, and to this day, I have a profound and, and and yet very compassionate relationship with the Stations of a Cross and with Jesus in particular, but certainly not the way you would grow up in Christian studies and be taught about. Definitely not in the school that I was in. So today, I get to talk with this incredible author, uh, who she's going to share with you a little bit about how she was raised. But, you know, Dr. Swenson has written this book for both popular academic and otherwise people that are interested in taking, as some people would say, kind of fun, interesting perspective on one of the most revered books ever written, and that is the Bible. She's joining us here today, and she has been on many, many radio shows since I first got to talk with her. So we're going to check in and see how things are going. You're going to get to meet her up close and personal. Uh, and more importantly, how her life has taken her on this very interesting path. It's almost sometimes we think about the soul's journey. It's almost like each of us has gotten our own personal yellow brick road. Kristen, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. I'm I'm so interested in talking with you tonight. 
Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So let me just, uh, let, let's just start with the yellow brick road idea, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, here recently I've had this notion that the whole yellow brick road idea, uh, metaphorically analyzed, everybody, of course, has, has just taken the Wizard of Oz and have made different, different sort of meaning to it. But the yellow brick road is something I've always really had my eye on. So recently I started to talk about each of us having our own yellow brick road. And if we had our own yellow brick road, who might some of the characters be on that road that we'd find? Now I want to ask you this question, especially from the, the book, Bible Babble. You know, if there was a yellow brick road to describe the journey of some people that are featured and highlighted in the, in the Bible, who would show up? Who might show up as the tin man, so to speak? Or maybe they would show up in other ways. So I wanted yeah. to ask you this question, if you don't mind taking that journey with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds like fun. It's really fun. And you know, what comes to my mind is that each of us may be all of those characters along the road. Yes. Um, certainly, the Bible is... It really is fantastic. I think it, so sort of thinking about it in the, um, in, in comparison to the Wizard of Oz is not such a far stretch in that we're working with when we, so the Bible comes to us looking like a normal book, right? Or like a modern yeah. book. It's, it comes to us pages bound between two covers. It can sit very neatly on a bookshelf, just like all the other books we have. But it's very different. It does not come from just one person in a very written in a discreet uh, moment in time that is has a single plot line with distinguished characters that you learn about at the beginning and that you follow through to the end. But it is a, a jumble, if you will, of lots of different kinds of literatures, different perspectives, even different ideas about God. And yet it is this collection that is authoritative for millions of people. It has power that goes beyond the sort of um, hard and fast object that it is. And so it invites us to think about its dynamic. And I think that it is a little bit like that um, experience, the, a yellow brick road experience or a Wizard of Oz experience. Not that it's so far-fetched that we can't make any sense of it, but um, you noted, you asked, you know, how I might have made sense of this really complicated book. And, and truthfully, the sense I've made has been that it's a very complicated book and yes. <laughs> accepting that. So, so I sort of made sense that it is not nonsensical, but that it has lots of different senses, and it speaks in different ways to different people in different contexts. Not that it can say absolutely anything, but it is a complex book. And given that complexity, of course, it helps. One of the reasons I wrote this book was to give people a kind of guide, to give them some handles to help them in their reading and making sense of that book. But appreciating that it has lots of voices in it, lots of different perspectives, I think goes a long way to making sense of it, to understanding it, understanding that it's difficult to understand. <laughs> it is difficult to understand. And what's interesting is how creative 
um, I think right now in our pop culture, how creative different people that, you know, speak to the, to, to the Bible, how they, how they speak to it differently. And let me just give you an example because I want to ask you about this. I want to ask you about the different interpretations. You know, there's one school of thought, you know, the folks that, uh, you know, preach the Bible and live by the Bible and have a very, um, how should I say, fear-based approach to what the Bible says. Then if you flip the coin, the same book, it's called the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. You get somebody, another person. Let, let me just use Joel Osteen, for example. You get a guy like Joel Osteen. There's no question that he is a Bible reader. But he has a different interpretation of this. And so on the one hand, you have somebody that sees a benevolent God, right? And, 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 and if you know anything about him, every time you watch him on television or you read his book, it's your time. This is all about upbeat. This is all about activate your, your faith, activate your dreams. Then there's another side of, of, of thought, another school of thought that says, oh my gosh, this is a fear-based God. How can one book, right? I'm talking about one book have so many interpretations. And I mean, these are opposite ends of the spectrums here. Yeah, yeah. It um, is a book that developed over a long period of time and has all of these voices in it. And they reflect their historical context. That is, they reflect these different points in time and so vary on account of that. And also in their interpretation of those events. And then we get modern readers' interpretation of what they are reading. And so we have a multiplicity of possible ways the Bible can mean. And I think that's part of how, part of why it has continued to endure as long as it has. That is that it continues to mean. People continue to find in it um, things that inspire, things that, yes, may terrify, things that comfort, things that encourage. People uh, read in this um, multiplicity of voices different, uh, different things for different times in their lives. So that's one, one part, I guess, of an answer to your question. It's an intriguing one. I also think, in part because of that multiplicity of voices in the Bible, that it invites us to be engaged with it. Um, rather than maybe finding the answer for all time and taking the Bible at, if you would, face value, I think it asks of us even more than that. It asks of us that we think for ourselves as we engage with it. Um, because it has all of these different elements. And, of course, if we're reading in English, we're reading it in translation, which adds another element of challenge to the business of determining exactly what the Bible says. So one of the chapters in Bible Babel is actually titled, What's the Best Translation? Because a lot of people ask me that question. And and it's a good question, knowing that all translation is itself interpretation. It helps us to know a little bit about the original languages, simply that they may be languages we're not familiar with, and then to be able to compare different uh, translations as we read a particular text. So, yeah, the Bible can say lots of different different things. 
I mean, this is interesting, and, you know, certainly reading your book. Uh, and for those of you just tuning in, uh, Kristen Swenson joining us here today. She is the author of Bible Babel, but she's also much more. I mean, Kristen, I mean, you, you essentially have dedicated your life to these studies, correct? I have, yeah. And I, I've been thinking lately, it's funny, I, I love the Bible. Now, when somebody says that, I, a lot of people would leap back, like, oh, my goodness, you know, this is going to be... Uh, someone who's going to force their interpretation down my throat. When I say that, though, I mean it a little tongue-in-cheek. I, I mean it as like like the love that might develop between the couples of an arranged marriage, where I I love that there are these um, these inscrutabilities about the text. I love <laughs> that it has resonances in so many different times and places. Of course, one of the things that led me to write Bible Babble was simply to give people, no matter what they believe, um, the tools to make sense of biblical references in pop mm-hmm. culture. So you cited, yeah. you know, Law and Order and Lost and Shakespeare and, oh my goodness, we could go on and on. I had so much fun uh, looking at the ways in which by the, these particular texts and characters, people, places and things have shown up in, in pop culture. But um, I accept that that I don't have all the answers for mm. um, anything related to the Bible. It is this this ancient text that continues to have such power and resonance today, and that in itself is a lifetime of study. But then also learning about the historical context, the the real times and places out of which these texts develop, has really illuminated them for me. And I have such respect for the people who whoever they were, who were responsible for the development of these texts and um, their choices to retain disjunctions, dislocations, disagreements within the text, that, that those were not all smoothed over before we had this final product, which is the Bible, is a real source of, I mean, it can be exasperating, but it's also a source of delight and curiosity for me. Well, I mean, I want to talk about this, uh, you know, because you and I share that curiosity. I mean, you know, I'm sort of one of these people that uh, got, um, how should I say, uh, introduced to the Bible at a very, very young age. Before, Before I was actually old enough to have a misinterpretation, right? You know, there's such innocence when you're introduced to a concept as a young child, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's the difference between, I mean, think about it. You know, it's the difference between uh, a, a seven-year-old child, right, going to see a movie like Avatar and believing everything in the movie is real versus being a 50-year-old person going to see the movie Avatar and just looking at it and talking about how Hollywood and special effects it is, right? So that mm-hmm. seven-year-old takes a very innocent a perspective and and believes that the characters are real right mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. it's like santa claus you know mm-hmm. you believe mm-hmm. santa claus is real until someday you don't yeah and 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 so i want to talk to you about this because yeah well and i i think there's a third way a person okay. might take it and i think okay. this, again someone maybe a 50 year old but an adult watching avatar May find in it and in its uh, all its Hollywoodness and special effects a really powerful story 
telling truths in ways different than simple, right. straightforward facts, that mm-hmm. the child may take it at face value as sort of a literalist reading or watching, where an older person knows that it's not, it, it's not, things don't happen exactly like that, but, uh, but they do. But there are, you know, these characters, there are, um, there are episodes in our life that you, that, that, that make us bigger than we have been. And we may think differently about a story that reaches us in those places than we might require of a scientific narrative. Mm-hmm. So I think the Bible, too, can be read in these ways that are powerfully true without requiring that they be literally true. The, um, you know, those stories of creation at the very beginning of the Bible, I think are good examples of that. The stories that tell of the magnificence of God, if you will, or the order of mm-hmm. the universe, God's ordering out of chaos, or um, God's intimacy with human beings in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, that Garden of Eden story. You may find, yeah, yeah different kinds of truths than oh, yeah. did, yeah. did the world come into being in seven 24-hour days. Right, exactly. But, you know, I think I was on your blog. I'm trying to remember when I was looking on your blog. Maybe it was today. And I think you were you were speaking about the power of imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to talk with you about this because – you know, law and order, and we're going to talk about some of the our pop culture isms for a moment. Mm-hmm. But I was really struck by the idea of power of, of imagination because I always loved, you know, my imagination, how creative I could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, c- creative to the point where when I was younger, nobody would believe me, yeah. you know, when I said in Catholic boarding school that Jesus was actually talking to me. Hence, I got thrown out of Catholic boarding school for that. But part of this is our imagination. Let me ask you this question, because I think this is a question that people must ask you all the time. How much of the Bible do you think is imagination? Mm-hmm. I think um, I think part of the answer would require that we be a little introspective. How are we reading it? You know, it's just words on a page unless we are reading them, right? Unless people are engaged with them. And I think people may read differently. The Bible seems, I think a lot of people are anxious about applying their imagination to it or allowing space for that and making that okay (laughs) Um, when it comes to the Bible, thinking, well, it's it's God's word, therefore, you know, I have to read it exactly literally as it um, appears to me on the page. Mm-hmm. When it may evoke ideas and questions or even um, negative responses from us that I think are valid, and that's part of our engagement with the text. Now, I um, so I think, you know, there are these people will sometimes ask me, well, what's with... You know, the um, the Bible says in one place one thing, and it says in another place another thing. And we may be able to reconcile those if we think a bit about the historical context out of which they come mm-hmm. um, and apply our imagination to the ways that people may have thought about their world in these different times and places and tried to make sense of them. But... 
um, I think also this power of imagination is, and I'm, I've borrowed that and I'm referring in my blog to an essay that one of my colleagues wrote, Cliff Edwards, which was just wonderful in which he talked about the power of imagination in the context of sports. You know, VCU, my school, very <laughs> recently went to the, got to the final four in basketball. This was a huge deal. You know, it was big upset. Nobody really expected them to get that far. And so it was, it was a really big deal. And, um, and Cliff observed how, you know, we wrestle with in, in the university, we wrestle with these huge, big ideas, you know, of, of solving the world's problems. So what's with sports? You know, why do we care so much about that? And he observed that we apply imagination in this world of um, athletic competition in ways that can be really healthy and in ways that can translate into some of those other areas of um, investigation and um, effort, those, you know, striving to cure cancer or um, striving to resolve um, peace or diplomatic issues around the world. The imagination to, or the ability to imagine resolution, the ability to imagine success, is a very powerful thing. And um, when it comes to the Bible, I think, the ability to imagine a world in which there is space for paradox, a place for beauty, a place for truths that may not necessarily require scientific validation, is, um, I think, a really um, enriching, an enriching thing for us. I, I love the way you've said that because, you know, the reason I brought up the original interpretation, and I love that you pu- you pointed out a third option, is because uh, it is true. You can pick up a book like I referred to, uh, the book by Joel Osteen, for example, and, you, you know, and he will pull things right out of the Bible. But there is a different interpretation of it. And let me give you an example. Uh, because I then want to talk to how we then carry these interpretations forward to our everyday lives, not only just on television, but in politics, and and how we then also become split around what the meaning is uh, mm-hmm. from a spiritual point of view. I, I mean, you know, I remember reading in Joel's book, he was talking about, you know, after the, the, the resurrection, I think Jesus comes out and says, you know, talks about I was dead, but I live evermore. Because I live, you can also live. Now, his interpretation of that, he goes on to talk about the abundance in life that is our divine birthright, all of us. And and his whole book is about this. It's about the now time. So he takes an interpretation of the Bible, brings it into the 21st century to to send a message of abundance and prosperity. And I wanted to ask you, um, is he an anomaly right now in doing that? Are you seeing a change in the way the Bible is being discussed? And, you know, is it because our pop culture wants a more benevolent God? I don't know. Those were a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, they're great questions. They're great questions. I don't think he's an anomaly. I think that there are people in... um especially in pulpits all over the country who Mm -hmm. are seeking ways to make the biblical text uh, comfort, inspire, do all good things for their parishioners. 
interpreting um, biblical texts in ways that are enriching and enlivening for um, their their uh, congregations and communities. I think people are, are hungry for that kind of interpretation, as I expect we always will be. Mm-hmm. Something in us, you know, that we, we, we need encouragement and, and a sense of purpose and direction. And I think that uh, some of his interpretations of biblical texts do that. And I think a lot of, yeah, I think a lot of people are doing that. I also think that a lot of people are looking at biblical texts and identifying ways in which we've gone wrong and that we've made God angry and we need to correct. And they actually are also reading accurately in biblical texts. I One of the things that I wanted to do with Bible Babble was not only to introduce people to you know all these different characters, people, places, and things, that are in the Bible, what's with the number seven, who's David, and why do we care, why was it so important that Jesus be connected to him, what's the relationship between Zion and Jerusalem, things like that. Right. But I also wanted, and to provide some historical background, what were the contexts out of which these biblical texts evolved, and how did we get a Bible in the first place. But I also wanted to um, acknowledge that the Bible, again, speaks with many voices, and it people... I have a chapter on controversial issues to show how people use the Bible to argue sometimes both sides of the same controversial issue. They are both appealing to the Bible, and it means in the ways, and it does, in the ways that they are reading it. I wanted to show how people can do that, because the Bible does have all these wonderfully inspiring and comforting and encouraging texts within it. And it also has very um, demanding and judgmental and punitive expressions within it. It has all. It really runs the range of what we may um, what we may think and feel and imagine. And I, I and I like that. It it has such variety, and in that variety, I think it 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 demands of us that we bring our own hearts and minds to bear in our reading, thinking, talking about these texts. There's a playfulness that it also, I think, encourages, but it is in it's that engagement with, rather than a simple adoption of the text, but a real questioning of them, challenging them, um, accepting and adapting them in ways that we find it with our in our heart of hearts, if you will, and with our the greatest intellectual capacity we can bring to bear, have sense and meaning. So again, I think that that the the diversity of ideas and texts within the Bible demands of us that we uh, bring our all of what we know and understand, think, and feel to bear on our interpreting of them. Mm. That is so beautifully said. Uh, you know, fast forward to the 21st century, and, you know, I've often wondered, what would Jesus say if he was here now? <laughs> what would Jesus think of the movie Avatar? I was actually talking to a few, few of my friends about that. Um, because it's an interesting question, and, and, I, and I kind of want to look at some of the most popular um, aspects of drama we have right now, especially in cinematography, you know, yeah. especially on television, 
um, because there is this idea of right and wrong, so to speak. And I'm giving it to you in my most simplest terms, right and wrong. Um, and in a sense, it's an idea of good versus evil, even in Avatar, uh, even in that movie. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, do you find the, the, these as similarities to what you've discovered in the Bible? Do people consciously know that they're making reference to the Bible, or is it? Or are we in a subconscious state around consciousness? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that people sometimes draw upon biblical images and language in ways they may not be fully aware they're doing. I'm thinking of uh, a passing comment I heard in a in a news program some time ago. I don't remember what the context was, but the woman said, "This is a split the baby scenario." Oh wow! And it was right out of um, that story in the Bible in which Solomon, the king, demonstrates his great wisdom by threatening to cut this baby in half. And it's a way of determining the real mother between these two women who are quarreling over um, whose baby this is. And, of course, the woman who agrees to give the whole and healthy baby to the other woman rather than cutting it in half and taking half is the true mother. This was his demonstration of wisdom. Well, I'm not sure that she meant to be referring to the Bible there, but it was a story that had resonance for her in a context completely other than a religious one, and that made sense in that particular situation. And then I think about others that are more intentional uses of the Bible, and one that I found really intriguing I came across quite recently was in the movie True Grit. Oh, yeah. When, um, yeah, I loved it. When Maggie, you know, this 14-year-old who's on this quest to to do justice, um, by by bringing the man who had killed her father to justice, which would be his death. She, um, at one point, I think, thinks aloud to herself out of Psalm 23. And it's, I think, a quite intentional use of that psalm, but there's a really intriguing twist. So Maddie, the character, says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no one. Well, anyone who's memorized this psalm, and a lot of people have, will uh, hear in that, right, the difference between fear, fear no evil and fear no one. And this character, this girl, in that, in that um, substitution of no one for no evil, has suggested that, that bad, that evil in the world is a human construct, right? It is human behavior not a supernatural out there um, thing that we have absolutely no control over, but instead is represented by human activity and human behavior. Just as good, we might say, is um, is something that human beings are entirely capable of doing and recognizing. I love that, um, that use of Psalm 23. Mm. It really is interesting. And, you know, I think that in the movie, and I agree with you, I thought that was a very good movie. Um, what I think is so convincing is that it came from the mouth of, uh, of, 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 of a babe, of our youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in a sense. I mean, which almost made it, uh, it made, didn't, it, did it make you stop and think and, well, probably not you. But for most people, you stop and think and say, now, wait a minute. Is that exactly the way that should be said? <laughs> that yeah. sounds like, yeah, yeah. you're right. 
Um, but, you know, here we are, and it shows up in a movie like that. You know, it also shows up in many other places. I know that one of the things we're going to talk about in our pop culture or our television shows like Law & Order. You know, Law & Order was a number one show for, oh, my God, what, decades? Yeah. And uh, just recently went off air, which I think they uh, it was it was really, I think they're rethinking that. Um, but still, now there's Law & Order L.A., so let's bring the conversation out to L.A. The reason I want to ask you about this is I want to ask you about the role that men play, the role that women play mm -hmm. in these dramas, mm -hmm. and if there are similarities to the mm -hmm. roles of men and women in the Bible. Hmm. Oh, um, this, this I can say with confidence, that the biblical text, come out of a patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. The biblical texts, even spanning as many centuries as they do in their development from the earliest texts in the Christian Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, we think may come from as early as like a thousand years before the year zero, a thousand BC. And um, the latest texts come from the early second century um, of the Common Era. And so we have, you know, maybe 1,200 years worth of literature, but consistently in that historical context is um, a patriarchal nature of the culture. And so we have in all of these texts then that that's an that's an anchor. That's a that's the atmosphere out of which they come. And so we have much less attention given to women especially women in leadership positions in the Bible, then we might want to see in a um, post-feminist era in the United States where, you know, we, I'm, I'm a woman who has enjoyed the work of the women before me who have paved the way for equal rights and so on. Um, our world is very different than the world of the text that the Bible reflects. And, so to expect them to do what we might want them to do in our world is, I think, um, is perhaps irresponsible toward the text themselves, but mm -hmm. um, respecting that they come from a different culture. And then, and then reading with that in mind is important. Now, some people have taken that culture and presumed that it is prescriptive for us today, that is, that we should have that same kind of patriarchal um, culture because it is biblical, if you will, when that was simply the culture out of which the texts come, descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. But this is a, you know, a source of some disagreement among people about how, you know, what the role of women ought to be if they're a Bible-serious people. Um, uh I love how we are really getting into some of the characters in the Bible. So what do I mean by that? Okay. So, of course, you've got the work of, what is it, Dan Brown, and questioning the very essence of uh, of Christianity in a lot of ways. Uh, and there's some imagination, uh, if I could say, that certainly went into the books that he wrote, and certainly the 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 movie, the the Hollywood version um, mm -hmm. that came out, uh, you know, about uh, uh, 
Da Vinci and so forth. I mean, some people look at some of these movies, they look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, you know, some of the things that are emerging right now, you know, the idea that technology will open the door, open the key, it's become quite popular. So does that mean that people are looking for a new description, definition of the Bible? I mean, think about it. How does a book like the Da Vinci Code and the movie, how does that become so popular? Mm-hmm. Right? Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, the Bible has all sorts of holes in it. Um, <laughs> that is, it it does, it dwells on things we may not find particularly compelling. Like, think of all the laws, you know, in the early books of the Old Testament um, the first few, and you come across in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, and and yet it won't tell us things that we may really be interested in learning more about, like what, uh, where did Cain get his wife? You know, this this first son of the first couple all of a sudden <laughs> often gets married. You know, we don't know anything about all these other people. Where did they come from? Or, um, you know, what was what's with Deborah? This woman who who becomes the leader in ancient Israel, a woman, we've just been talking about the patriarchal culture, out of which these texts come. We don't expect a woman to be the spiritual, military, and, you know, the um, community leader of this ancient Israelite group. And yet she is, and we don't hear anything about it. The, the biblical narrators present her to us as though it's perfectly natural that a woman would be a judge. Um we don't hear a lot about Mary Magdalene that we might want to know more about. And um, so we have these opportunities for someone like a Dan Brown to come along and fill in those blanks for us. Um, the rabbis, these old um, Jewish teachers, are great at this sort of thing. That is, at playing with the, the holes, the silences in the text, and filling them in with possibilities. The texts, I think, invite us to do that. They encourage us to get in and and make um, make more of them than they spell out explicitly. What's really interesting to me about Mary Magdalene, um, coming back to, of course, one of the foci of Dan Brown's story, is um, not so much that she might have been a wife of Jesus, but that she shows up more than any other woman in the New Testament. She shows up consistently in every one of the four Gospels. And she does so at the most, um, what we could call, Christologically significant moments. That is, in the moments in the story in Jesus' life that are most telling of him as a unique uh, human being, God. And um, yet not much is made of that. But her presence at those moments would seem to suggest to us that she was a leader within that community. That is, being present or observing uh, the uh, resurrection. The um, Gospels tell how it is that Mary was um, present at that mysterious moment that is associated with the resurrection. And... That was a sign of a leader in the early Christian community. But um, but Mary instead gets confused as a prostitute, though she's never it's never spelled out in the Bible that she's a prostitute. But that's the the most titillating and exciting 
um, characterization, I think, that people have for her, and so it has hung on. But um, what's even more compelling to me is that she seems to be, the, our, our picture of her in the New Testament is um, one we might be confident is based on a real person who was uh, an important part of that early Christian community. Mm. One of the most fascinating uh, uh, characters from the Bible, of course, Mary Magdalene. I want to just tell everybody, Kristen Swenson joining us here today. The book is Bible Babble. Uh, it is, I've, it's an incredible book. I mean, but more importantly are the conversations I get to have with her about the book. You know, some of the questions that every time I pick up the book and I read it, and I read it every time, you, you know, I have you all, uh, come on and always find something else to speak with you about. Um, it, it, I, I think the last time that we were on, one of the things that I didn't talk about, uh, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, is the Gospel of Thomas. And I want to talk about that. But before I do, tell people how they can find out more about you and how they can get a copy of the book. Sure. Um, the book should be available in all normal outlets, online yeah. and hopefully brick-and-mortar stores. It um, is just out in paperback with Harper yep. Perennial. came out in hardback last year. And um, they can also find me and the book, if they'd like, and a little more about it on my website, which is kristenswenson.com. And it's my name, spelled K-R-I-S-T-I-N-S-W-E-N-S-O-N. I also have a blog on there if people are interested. Oh, and you, and Pat, you, you noted that you had had a look at that. If yes. people are interested in a few sort of light musings here and there, um, I try to post something every now and then. So... We'd love love visitors to the blog and um, love to hear from people, readers. Yeah, the book is for general readers. It is not um, – I love our conversations, Pat. It's such fun. But we are certainly getting into more than the book addresses. It is um, basic information about the Bible for general readers, no matter what you believe. So um, I tried to, in a rather fast-paced, hopefully fun way <laughs> – cover all the basic things that any person might want to know and need to know in order to make sense of the Bible for themselves. I'm not interested in trying in communicating or pressing a particular interpretation on people, but instead just giving them the tools to make sense for themselves. Yeah, but I'll tell you one of the things you do. I know that we're getting into these conversations, but I will tell right. you that, you know, from my point of view, some of the questions that I walk away uh, with after I read the book are these questions that lead to these conversations, right? Yeah, yeah wonderful. Yes, because you have laid this out in a way that we can make our own interpretation. Um, uh, you know, for example, uh, I know one of the things that I just asked you about and I, I would like to ask you about is and it is controversial, I believe. You know, the gospel according to Thomas. Everybody's like, really? Who is Thomas? Where did he come from? And so let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, sort of the discovery of of this, and for short, I guess they call it Gospel of Thomas. I, I don't think that the gospel according to Thomas is recognized. Uh, is it, Kristen? It's not part of the canon, so it's not right. part of the final form of the Bible, mm -hmm. but it is one of the Gospels, and there were a bunch of them, actually, that circulated among the early Christian community that were not finally um, incorporated into the canon. 
Now, there's a lot of talk these days about why that is, and they tend to be these conspiracy, kind of conspiracy ideas with a great deal of sensation. Mm-hmm. And um, that's fun, <laughs> and it's it's a sexy <laughs> theory, but I don't think it's it's really um, as close to accurate as this. That is, I think that the books that were finally included in the Bible were so because they endured as the most um, important for the community over time. That is, I think it was a more organic process of development that the early Christian community continued to appeal to some texts more than others and prioritize some over others, just rather naturally. And those are the ones that we have, finally, in the Bible as we have it. Now, there may be more things that were going on behind the scenes at that time, and certainly there were heated debates and really passionate um, conversations and arguments about Jesus, who Jesus was, and what really then what it meant to be a Christian. But the books that are incorporated in the Christian uh, Bible reflect the um, ideas of that early Christian community in ways that I think were corporate and organic, more than just a couple of guys sitting in a room behind closed doors making these decisions. Mm. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is one of those that's not included in the final form of the Bible, but is really intriguing for our thinking about the development of Christianity and the early Christian communities. It's um, The Gospel of Thomas is completely sayings of Jesus. That is, its form is as a collection of sayings of Jesus. And they may come before some of the quotes that we have in the New Testament. That is, it may be that some of the gospel writers used some of the Gospel of Thomas, but it may be the other way around, too. We don't know for sure. But it um, it certainly represents, and along with all the other gospels that are not included in the New Testament, it um, represents the diversity of thought among that early Christian community, and that's really interesting for us. So I've saved the best for last, and unfortunately, I'm sure we're not going to have enough time to talk about this. We're going to have to come back and do a whole show just on this. We have a fascination with the devil. And, um, you, I mean, honestly, growing up, one of my favorite songs, so don't even ask me any personal questions about this because I don't really know why, was uh, a Rolling Stone song. Uh, and the Rolling Stone song was Sympathy for the Devil. Right. Uh, And the lyrics of this song are very interesting. It became a very popular song. It also became the theme of Interview with a Vampire, one of the songs Mm. through that. So what's interesting, and I want to ask you about this, because I I don't get to talk to many people about Lucifer or the devil or whatever. (laughs) Um, It seems like he's going through a makeover, if I might say. He's going through a makeover. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've come a long way uh, from talking about him as evil, let's not say his name, and so forth, to now making him almost popular, Al Pacino's role, playing him. I mean, bringing his face and figure to what's going on in the economic status. I mean, some people would say it's his time. Other people would say, it's just our pop culture. Mm. How do you interpretation 
Yeah, I am. Um, How do you interpret thing, his role? Yeah, for one thing, in the Bible, again, I just love the bit that it kind of complicates things. It does <laughs> so in ways that are really thought-provoking. And um, so the Bible, as you might now imagine, does not have just one representation for Satan or even one name, right, for the personification right. of evil. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even have a kind of personification of evil until around the New Testament times. That is, all of the books of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible have, um, there's, there's an absence of the corporate evil, that is, or I should say, the personification of evil as a power over and against God and other than God. The word Satan, actually, however, is a Hebrew word. And um, Hebrew, biblical Hebrew was written without the distinction between capital and lowercase letters, so we have to kind of figure out, based on context sometimes, whether we are working with a proper noun or a regular noun. Hebrew... Hebrew's word Satan, which is how you would pronounce it in Hebrew, is means adversary, generally speaking. And it's used of um, real people, for one thing, like David is um, described as possibly a Satan, not as not as Satan or personification of evil, but as an adversary, as a potential adversary to the Philistines. Also, um, God actually employs a Satan to function as a a way that some translations use as angel in um, the book of Numbers with this talking donkey story. So we have the use of Satan in the Hebrew as one who is an adversary, who um, kind of pushes, pushes but is not in, a, in and of itself evil. The book of Job has maybe the most developed Satan, and it's usually translated Satan at the beginning of that book, but probably still better translated as an adversary. This is one who is among the divine beings that come and report to God. So this is not one who inhabits hell and who wears a red suit and has horns, but <laughs> is is one of these, um, we might say, godlets, these sons of God who come and talk to the high God um, in Job. But Satan becomes a distinct character by the time of the New Testament, which reflects theological developments in what we call the intertestamental period, that is the period between the time when the Hebrew Bible was, um, or the books of the Hebrew Bible were written and when the books of the New Testament were written. We have this development in uh, Judaism of a thinking that would include this personification of evil as a power altar to God. And then that comes to full force in the New Testament text, in which we have a Satan as a character who opposes God. But interestingly, you use the, the word Lucifer, which is one of the, the synonyms, right, for Satan in our right. culture. But that word actually is one that is never made explicit in the Bible as a name for Satan, this fallen angel, but instead probably reflects a story from um, Isaiah, a poem that reflects or, or that describes the king of Babylon as a star that was trying to become the highest of all the stars, but God would reduce him to lower than the earth. That's of the king of Babylon. But he's called morning star or star of dawn 
which when that text was translated into Hebrew became Lucifer, which is light bringer in Hebrew. And then when the King James uh, translation came along, that Latin Lucifer was retained but capitalized. And so we have this name for Satan that, again, is not made explicit in the Bible, but is the product um, of some translation. I think we've done an incredible job in the 21st century, century in our, our pop culture, Kristen, and I'd I, I, I love for you to comment on this, uh, in really finding the many faces of uh, whether it's Satan, whether it's Lucifer, certainly has become popularized in our pop culture in a lot of different ways. The latest now being the whole vampire craze. I mean, my gosh, the undead and the representation and symbology of that. I mean, yeah. is there a connection between our current craze now in vampirism and some of the characterizations of Lucifer and his team? Um, you know, the vampire stuff is really interesting in that <laughs> it, um, it, it, is, it relies on this idea that blood is life. and um, that that in the blood is where life is. You know, see, vampires subsist entirely on blood, which is the life of living beings, right? Vampires not really being alive. Um, and that's a very Old Testament-ish idea. There's real concern with blood, and that blood be in its proper place. And, of course, in Genesis we read how after the flood, God allows human beings to become omnivores in Genesis uh -huh. chapter 1. We're you know, all described as vegetarians, but God says after the flood, well, it looks like human beings' inclination is toward violence. And so they are allowed this outlet of eating other, other meat, but not with the blood in it, because the blood is life, and the life belongs to God. Mm. And so you have this, um, this riff with all the vampires on blood as life and who controls that life who has that blood is um, a really interesting question in light of the development of these vampire stories that's right and yeah. the popularity you and i'll have yeah. to come back and we'll have to do a show just on this topic <laughs> that would be uh, because if you watch some of the shows, and not necessarily the you know the the current work that's out there right now, the, the Twilight series, not so much of that happens except in the in the latter books where there are references to good, evil, God, and so forth. But definitely with Anne Rice's interpretation and in vampire work, you know there there is a very interesting uh, reflection to it. So we'll have to come back and see what the fascination is, because the fascination is crossing all religious boundaries. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Christians are watching vampire things. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to really talk about that. Christian, I am so love talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. It's really been fun. Oh, my gosh, everybody. Uh, Bible battle. And, uh, Kristen, thank you so much. I hope you will come back. I know you've got a, another book out there, which I'm very interested in talking with you about. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Pat. It's really been great.
All right, everyone. Boy, we could have gone on for a I, – I didn't even get to half of the things I wanted to talk with her about. There is so much in the book. It is really an interesting way. I guarantee you, you will walk away with more questions, and then you'll have to interview Kristen. <laughs> Thank you all for tuning us in, turning us on. Thank you for tuning into the Dr. Pat Show. If you've missed any part of this at all, make sure you go to drpatlive.com. The archive should be up in a few days. Thank you all for supporting what we do, and thank you so much for doing what you do and being who you are. We'll see you next time on the Dr. Pat Show. Maybe